0: Praise the Lord. You know, it's been great these days that that uh, Vicki and I have been here. She's not here tonight, obviously, but we have thoroughly enjoyed our time here, and uh, thank God for our friendship with with you guys and what God's brought us together to enjoy our our faith and our fellowship together. And uh, and I do believe there's there's real purpose in all of it. I don't think it is it is anything but inside the plan of God. That God's brought us together and brought this time together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here's what we all know. We all know you plow a field and you plant a seed. And uh, that you don't see what's going on under the ground. Right. You don't see what's going on for days and days or weeks and weeks. You know, like I've said, I hadn't really done much farming. Having grown up in Los Angeles, that wasn't really the, the deal there. Uh, for me anyway, that's for sure. But, uh, we understand how it works. And I don't understand all of it. I know Bloomberg does, but I don't understand all of it. <laughs> don't get me started on that. That's hysterical. <laughs> but, but we do understand the concept. You sow a seed and it grows. You don't see the seed. Part of what we were talking about and looking at this morning really had that idea attached to it. And so what we know is in ministry, we've done it for years. All of us have that have been involved in it. We've, we sow a seed and you watch how God causes it to grow. And the seeds that, that we sow, we don't always know how big the fruit is, is ultimately going to be. We just know it bears fruit. Glory to God. And any fruit of the Holy Spirit is good fruit. So we're expecting good fruit out of the times that we're here. We're enjoying it. But it's not about us enjoying it. It's about us doing what God's called us all to do. Amen. 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 So God brought my attention over to some things that I want to review with you. These aren't things that are new for you. I'm positive. But boy, there's some ideas in this that I want us to stir up on the inside of you. And I'm going to read first from the book of Romans, one of the greatest books ever written, along with all the others that are in the Bible. But uh, the book of Romans, the first chapter where the Apostle Paul, he starts by laying out what is vital in what he's going to teach, not just to the Romans, but teach to all of us. And in the 16th verse, here's this familiar passage, he said it this way, he said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone. Now, when I read those lines, and we'll read further here in a moment, but it is salvation for everyone, and yet it's not just for anyone. Now, I know he said here, it is for everyone, and we know that it is, but when when you realize the gospel and the way things work, the blessing and the goodness of God that God has offered to every man is not for just anyone. It's only for someone who believes it. And the reason I... Emphasize it that way is because there's a great deal of confusion to some people as to why some are not receiving and others are. And while it is for everyone, it's not for anyone that doesn't believe what God has said. This is part of what I mentioned in one of the other services. Believing believers are people that chose to believe what God has said and make it their own. Our job in walking it out, and as leaders and ministers, here's what we've discovered. We've discovered our role is to raise up disciples so that they will personally embrace the things that God said belongs to them. You can't bring it to pass for people. You can't force people to receive it. You can't make people believe what they are still in question about. The blessing is available to anybody that will get into it. Just like the rain, the rain will rain on anybody that'll get out in it. And that's the same thing when it comes to walking it out in God. So here's what Paul said. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. That's where the power is. It's inside of the proclaiming of the gospel of Christ. But he said it's The power of God for salvation or deliverance or help or answers or restoration or recovery or all the things salvation offers, it is for everyone who believes it. What you believe really does matter. What you believe about the days that you're in right now really does matter. What you believe about God's design and desire to use you or change your life or deliver you from drugs or Whatever the issue is, whatever you choose to believe about, that really, really matters. And that's what unlocks the power. We've got so many times people frustrated they're not seeing the power of God. I don't understand, Dennis, why I love the Lord. I go to church. Although if you're watching by internet, it's highly likely you're not in church. But that's all right, man. We do love all of you watching and being there. We're here with you. Now, we are the church. That's what's important. Anyway, you get it. But it's not enough for us to be church-going people. Lord, I'm in church. I love Jesus. Why is it that more things are not happening? And what it really comes Mm -hmm. down to is not only what God has offered to people to receive, but what people choose to receive by Mm -hmm. believing what He said. Faith and grace are vital. Grace without faith... Gives you promise, but not the power of that promise actually active in your life. Right. Yeah. Faith without grace can turn into the works in order to perform enough to obtain it. And that's not really what we're designed to live by. We're designed to live believing what God has said and what he's offered. That it is a free gift given to us. Glory to God. Yes. But here's what he goes on to say in this next verse, verse 17. Verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So here's what we know. We know who the just are. But I'm going to quiz you anyway. Who are the just? We are the just. Justified. It is a revelation of righteousness. That to me goes right back to that little almost Sunday school chant. To be justified is just as if I had never sinned. Right. To walk with God, to believe and receive, to receive righteousness and right standing. It really is just as if we had never sinned. Now while that's what scripture's all about and what this book of Romans is all about. Largely, I find people don't typically really believe that's the case. That in God, it is just as if they had never sinned. The reason you know that is because they recount so many times all of the reasons that things have not turned out well, or what is not happening in their life, or they go back through and review all of the heartache and pain and all Awful things that have ever taken place as if it is still relevant. I sat with a lady a, a lot of years ago, or a few years back now, and she had been uh, battling cancer for quite some time. And as it turned out, she was just two weeks away, really, from going on to heaven. She knew the Lord. She hadn't been a strong Christian, maybe. But, you know, that's not whatever a strong Christian is. Christian is Christian. Christian. It really, when it comes down to it, but you know what I'm talking about. Somebody that's really grasped onto a lot of promise and really stood in the Word. Not everybody really has done that. And this lady hadn't. And she had struggled, been in her ups and downs, and she'd had a, a tough life in a lot of ways. But now here we are, two weeks from her, going to heaven. We didn't know that obviously in advance, but uh, she was close. And we had a we had a conversation, a good conversation, about a lot of things. Just chit-chatting about some things at first. And then she stopped and asked me this question. She said, uh, Dennis, do you believe I'll go to heaven? Now, for somebody to ask that question, it's very telling as to what's going on on the inside of them. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Everybody believes in it. They want to go to heaven, but when it comes right down to the wire, if you're still questioning, you've been living a life of heartache and uncertainty all through these years. And not really knowing what the promise of God is. There's people like this all over the place. They've struggled with what is really going to happen in their life and in their death after death. And she asked me this question. Am I really, do you think I'm going to go to heaven? And I said, well, you know, I really do. And here's why I believe you're going to go to heaven. I believe you're going to go to heaven because you have said that you believe that Jesus is Lord. And that he's Lord of all. And that he's your Lord. Is that true? You really you believe that? She said, yes, I do. Well, the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, If you believe in your heart that Jesus is raised from the dead, I've heard you say you believe that. You do still, don't you? And she said, well, yes. And I believe that Jesus is Lord, not just Lord of others, but Lord of my life. You believe that? Yes, I do. And I said, well, according to the word, then we've got every reason to believe, and you've got every reason to believe that heaven's your home. But I told her, I said, you know, it's really not important what I believe. Really, what's important is what you believe. And then here he came. This was the real issue that she was struggling with. She said, yeah, but I've done a lot of bad things. There's the, there's the deal. I've done a lot of bad things. And she began to talk about the things that she had done. And she had a, she had a good list. Of the things that she had done. Some of these things were decades old. But she had done them. And she was still carrying it. And she really didn't have the confidence that she was forgiven of those things. Lies that she had told. Things that she had stolen. People that she had hurt. Issues that had happened in her life. She had a long list and I'm sure it would have gone on a lot longer. Had I not put a stop to it. And I understood partly what she was doing. She was raised in a kind of religious setting. Well, for her, she had studied some religious ideas for a long time, and she felt it was important to confess. And there I was. Well, I, that's fine. It's not, I'm not going to be the one to help you. I'm not going to be much help to you to do it, but if that's what she needs to go through at this moment, man, I, that's fine. I don't care. But your faith isn't in what you can say to me. I said, here's the deal. I said, I understand that those things are things that you did and that have happened. And I said, I also understand that none of what you've just described to me is actually relevant at all to the subject that we're talking about. Because what you did, all of the things on your list and things that would continue to be on your list further than what you told me, all of those things, Jesus bought and paid for your forgiveness. And when you made him the Lord of your life, those things became irrelevant to your relationship to God. Now, they're still relevant in your head. I didn't go on into that, but I am here right now. They're still relevant in our head and in the way we will choose to believe in the peace we'll walk in, in the joy that we'll maintain. But all of those events, once we've made Jesus the Lord of our life, those things truly are out of our life. We are by faith in Jesus, redeemed, restored, delivered, healed, and we belong to God in our past, really is wiped out. He remembers our sins no more. This is the greatest message that we can ponder no matter how long we've known Jesus and how many times we've gone through it. One of the greatest things we remind ourselves of is that Jesus remembers our sins no more. Glory to God. It's a clean slate every day. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so this lady did. She she listened and she did her best to grasp it. But, you know, when you've had decades of condemnation in your life over things that you've done, it takes really connecting to the Holy Spirit for this to adjust inside of you. And so I prayed for to that end. And we prayed in the Spirit. She asked me, she said, would you just pray? It was great. She said, would you just pray in tongues? So I did. I just prayed in tongues and let the Holy Spirit just wash through her soul. That's what really needed to happen. Amen. we got to remind people and start with ourselves. Again, no matter how long we've walked in this, we have to keep ourselves clear. Here's, here's what Isaiah said about this, chapter 43, verse 24. It says here, "'You've brought me no sweet cane with money.'" This is God talking. He said, "'Nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices.'" But you have burdened me with your sins. You've wearied me with your inquiries, or uh, rather your iniquities. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Did you see that? I will not remember your sins. And uh, let me park on this point just for a moment before I read the, last, uh, the next verse, verse 26. He said, I'm the one who blots out your sins. But look at that. It's for his sake. That's interesting, isn't it? You would think he would say, I'm blotting out your sins for your sake. Because you need it. But God says, I'm blotting out your sins for my sake. How does that work? But then you realize how it does work. God doesn't want to have to focus on your screw-ups any more than you do. He's not looking to focus on your sin. It doesn't bring Him joy. It doesn't bring Him confidence, peace as to what He's going to be able to do in our life. He knows what He can do. But for his sake, he blots out our transgressions so that our transgressions are no longer hindering him from doing what he has wanted to do. Glory to God. That means every time our transgressions, our mess-ups, our life that we have lived and the mistakes that we've walked in, we call them mistakes, the sins that we've walked in every time we allow that to bubble up inside of our thinking and condemn us and convince us that we're not worthy to be used by God, we've got to go back to this and realize that for God's own sake, God has wiped out all of that. So he doesn't have to think about it. Glory to God. So then he says, put me in remembrance. This is God telling us, "Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case, that you may be acquitted." There's that word, acquitted. Now, I think I think David was talking about this. I think you were talking about this when we were when you were ministering the other night about being expunged. And Vicky brought it up, and I, I just had that stirring up in me again, so I'm going to bring it up again. That. That courthouse clerk that came to me after a service where I talked about these very things and mentioned this very word, acquitted, and she reminded me, and in fact I'd never heard it described just this way, but she said, as the clerk, my responsibility after a court case has concluded and the accused has been acquitted, it is my responsibility to go back through all of the records of... The accusations that have been brought against that, that accused person that is now acquitted and it was my job to be certain the entire record of everything that had ever been recorded regarding this case that the accusations were wiped out, erased, expunged, blotted out to use the terms we're reading here. Man alive, this is, this is the real deal. And it starts with God. It's not just a court system, man. This is a kingdom system to expunge the things that we've gone through and the things that we've allowed in our life. So, if God expunges it, uh, we need to do the same in our head. It takes the Holy Spirit to do it. Let me read a statement to you from Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Only I'm going to use another obscure sort of translation. It's fun getting some of these translations. This is a Ben Campbell Johnson translation. And it reads this way. He says, "There Now there is no accusing voice nagging those who are united to Christ Jesus. I love that. The nagging voice of accusation has been silenced. So when accusation over what you've done or haven't done, how you failed to do X, Y, Z, or what hasn't happened the way you wanted to see it happen, the the nagging voice of the accuser is silenced for us. And he goes on and he said, I'll start over because I've jumped in the middle then. So now... There is no accusing voice nagging those who are united to Christ Jesus. That is those whose lives are directed by the Spirit rather than their old attitudes and patterns. The new principles of life which Christ revealed has liberated me from the rules that unveiled my estrangement and made me feel my very being threatened. Wow. Wow is right. This is a new attitude and a new habit of life that we have to walk in. And I know that's part of discipleship. That's why we keep teaching and preaching a lot of the same sort of things because the same accuser keeps accusing the same people over the same things. And so our our responsibility is... To keep the Word alive and growing inside of people and doing our part anyway, to stir it up. That's what the Bible tells us to do, each one of us. So our assignment, my assignment in ministry, part of it, is to fulfill something that Jesus described to His first disciples, those apostles, when He told them to feed the sheep, that's what He told Peter, Feed my sheep. And he told those disciples of his that they were to raise up disciples. Not disciples to themselves. Disciples to the Lord. Yeah. Now, for a long time, there's been the propensity for people, some leaders, to begin to raise up disciples to themselves. That's a real misconception of what Jesus has assigned us to do. I remember when I first went into ministry, Vicky and I were still living in Southern California. I was on staff at a little church, well, big church. It was a growing church. Uh, and I was the youth minister, Vicky and I together were. We started with three youth, three young people in this church. And uh, within a year and a half, we had 150. Man, we felt excited about that. Man, God was using it. But it was during this time. This was the early '70s, out in California. We had been listening to Brother Copeland's ministry already now for a couple of years, but there was something else happening in the United States, and it wasn't just in the United States, but it was quite large, or was becoming quite large and get, getting some traction in the United States, and that was what later became known as the discipleship movement, and uh, it was led by some sincere people no question about it started really with a man in uh Argentina that I met a man named Juan Carlos Ortiz and a lovely man of God he came to uh, America with Charles Simpson and they brought uh some things with them of the teachings of discipleship that uh Juan Carlos had been teaching in Argentina and it had been having a good impact and it was really uh something that the way he taught it you got you could understand the significance and why it was a good idea. But what ultimately happened, and I, I don't really need to drag you through all this, I guess, to make the point I was making. But here we are. What ultimately happened, though, is a number of leaders, some real, real charismatic type leaders. I mean, these were, these were great people. But they got into a, a vein of teaching and a vein of belief of raising up disciples. It ended up to be disciples to them personally. And uh, using biblical ideas and biblical things, uh, it ended, for some, to be a heavy, controlling, legalistic, damaging kind of life. Then we had personal friends get very involved in it. And uh, some that became teachers in that whole uh, direction for a period of time until it all felt drastically and terribly apart. And, uh, people crashed and burned as a result of it. And it was, it was hurtful. Hey, come on in. Come up front, man. Don't stay in the back. That's the word. Certainly. Just do anything you need to. It does. We started early. (laughs) Praise the Lord. I'll have to extend my message now. But during all this time, the church we were involved in started to have some questions and, and there was something happening even within this one body where some people within that church were, were just so focused on faith and walking in the word of faith message that we were laying hold on. I mean, Brother Hagan had come to our church and Brother Copeland was coming to the church and, and, uh, Jerry Savell came to the church and Derek Prince came to, the, whoops. Uh, and uh, others came to the church that was just amazing. But there was also a, a segment of this church, and a good number, that were really pursuing teachings uh, regarding this discipleship movement. And uh, and so, you know, I'm young in the Lord, young in things. I'm hearing things from people that I, I uh, admire, and uh, I've, I had questions. So I decided I would write Kenneth Copeland a letter and ask him. Brother Copeland, uh, I, I don't remember all the words the way I described it, but I just basically asked, uh, in light of things that are being said and talked, you know, uh, you you believe that we want to be raising up disciples, as, as defined by this particular group, teaching a discipleship. Because the idea of discipleship has been taught since Jesus said it, so there's plenty of positive and great things being taught about being disciples of the Lord. But this particular emphasis was taking people down a pretty, pretty dangerous road. But in the early stages of it, I wrote this letter to Brother Copeland, and I waited patiently for a uh, for a letter to to be sent back, some sort of answer. I'm still waiting for that letter. I never got a reply from Brother Copeland in, by letter as to how he viewed this, but it was a few months later, and uh, he was going to be in our church. He was going to be speaking in our church. Well, I hadn't gotten a letter back, and I'm young, and I'm an idiot, and, uh, <laughs> and Brother Copeland is on the platform. He's going to be speaking here in just moments. They're about to introduce him to speak. I'm sitting right next to him on the platform. But I hadn't got my letter back. And I did have a question. I, I wouldn't do it today. But I did it. Hey, Brother Copeland. Uh, I sent you a letter a few, few weeks back. That's how I started. Not sure where this might go. I did send you a letter a few weeks back. He said, yeah, Dennis. He said, I remember your letter. So I ventured right on in, just like the crazy kid that I was. I said, well, should I expect a reply? <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't do this today. I've, I've told this in front of me. Hey, you guys. Come on, man. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> good to see you too. Really good. I'm recounting an event that happened back when I was on staff at a church in California. And right in the the uh, earlier stages probably of the discipleship movement that that had hit this church. And this church I was in was preaching and teaching faith. And standing on the word. And there was some real... Divisive and contradictory kinds of things being said uh, among the people I knew anyway that were part of this discipleship movement. At any rate, I had asked Brother Copeland in a letter about discipleship, and I got no reply by letter until he came to the church I was at, and he was going to be speaking, and I'm on the platform, and I've asked him about this letter that I sent. It's shocking that I did this. It's embarrassing, actually, that I did. But I did. And uh, and I've talked about this more recently in a meeting where Kenneth was there. Of course, in those earliest days, now I think I was past it by then, I didn't even know how to spell Kenneth's name first time I wrote. I spelled his name K-O-P-L-A-N. So most likely he didn't get that one. At any rate, though, I'm seated on the platform. Well, you know, you don't know. And you don't take time to find out. That's what's really sad about that whole thing. (laughs) But now I'm seated on the platform. Kenneth Copeland's sitting next to me. He's moments from being introduced. I asked him if he got my letter. He said, yeah, I did get your letter. And I asked him then if I should expect a reply. He said, well, he just he just wrapped it up in this. He said, well, Dennis, I'll tell you this much. I'm not raising up disciples to myself. That's all I need to know, my brother. That's all the answer I needed. We understand our assignment as leaders, as ministers of the gospel, what we're called to do is to raise up disciples. That's what Jesus told his disciples to do. He said, feed my sheep. He told his, all of his disciples to, to raise up disciples, those that would believe in Jesus. Our assignment is to raise up people that understand how to serve God, how to walk it out, and how to be free from condemnation and the kinds of things that Satan uses to keep hammering people down. And this is what Paul is talking about throughout the entire book of Romans. We started in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 where he finally does say in that 17th verse, the just shall live by faith. Now look, we know this. This this is a statement. The just shall live by faith is a statement that's made four times in Scripture. Those exact words. Anything that God says four times exactly the same way has got to be a big deal. The just shall live by faith. The revelation of it is that we are the just. And that just means justification by faith, which there's volumes written about this, comes down to that simple little Sunday school message that you might hear the kids in the class chanting, what does it mean to be justified? It is just as if I had never sinned, which is shocking. Except God has said it over and over again. I will remember your sins no more. Now look, that doesn't mean that sins don't have consequences. I mean, I'm not going to go into graphic detail, but I know this firsthand. (laughs) Sin has consequences. I'm going to venture out and just say it this way as if I know about you too. You have most likely discovered exactly the same thing. Sin or compromise has consequences. We don't escape those consequences that we set in motion. But God does not hold our sin against us. In fact, here's how he says it over and over. We already read it from Isaiah 43. I will remember your sins no more. What that means is he's not bringing it up to us. He's not holding it against us. He's not thinking about it. He's not dealing with you today based on that sin. He's dealing with you and me today based on righteousness and based on faith. The just shall live by faith. We have to keep this alive in us. The just shall live by faith. I may have gone through a... A little study that I did with you last time I was here. I'm not certain I did, so I'm going to go through it. And if I did it last time I was here, you'll have to enjoy it a second time. But a number of years ago, quite a few years ago now, I did a study through the book of Romans only, just in Romans, about the word sin. It wasn't a how-to study. I was pretty clear on that. It It was though a... A simple study to find out how many times in the book of Romans was the word sin a noun, how many times was it a verb? Now that may not sound overly exciting, but people like us, for some reason, seem to enjoy these kind of weird studies. I want to find out what Paul, when he's talking about this subject, which is gigantic subject, Is he using the idea of sin as a noun in a statement, or is it a verb? So let's just talk about it together for a moment. Class, a noun is what? What is a noun? A person, place, or thing. And it is amazing. Every time we answer, anybody answers that question, it's always in that order. A person, place, or thing. There's no relevance to my message in that. It's just an observation that I've had. Forty-seven times in the book of Romans, the word sin is a noun. It is the place of sin that Paul is dealing with. The place of sin. That's where every one of us have found ourselves, isn't it? Originally, we found ourselves in a place of sin. Once our eyes were enlightened, we heard the gospel, we realized we had the need, we are in a place of sin which is separated from God. 47 times in the book of Romans, when Paul's talking about sin, he's talking about that place. The place that we all are in right from the start. The cage of sin. You can't get out of this place. It's a place there's no way out of. You can't do enough good things to get out. You can't give away enough money to get out. It is a prison that you will remain in all the days of your life. And yet, here's what you and me have discovered now. There's a door. There's a door that is unlocked that anybody can walk through. And you know where it goes? That's all about Jesus. He is that door. And anybody can swing the door open and step out. But there's no other way out. And once you step out of the place of sin, you are in Christ. No longer in the place of sin. I am now in the place of right standing, righteousness, the subject of the entire book of Romans. This is big information. Because that's the heart of what Paul's talking about. And yet, I found also that in this same study, seven times, only seven, but seven times, I found the word sin was a verb. So, class, a verb is, it's an action. It's a behavior. It's something we do. And here's what I found. I found it in myself, and I found it in others, uh, without even trying that even people that are out of the noun place of sin, they're in Christ. People in Christ still have a few verbs in their life. I'm trying to be kind, of course. They still have a few verbs. What are they? They're the behaviors that are not just like Jesus. (laughs) Would Jesus do this? Would Jesus do that? I don't know what all Jesus might do, but he would not have done that. They are behaviors. But here's what we also know about these behaviors. Every Christian you know has a few verbs remaining in their life. A few things that just don't reflect everything that Jesus is. Now, growing up in Jesus is all about narrowing the number of those down as much as possible, fewer and fewer. But nobody has done it and is doing it all exactly right, no matter how long they've served the Lord and walked with Jesus. Now, this isn't to say that God winks at these things as if it's all okay, No, He keeps working with us, man. He keeps peeling back the layers to get us free of the things that He has liberated us from. And a lot of it is to get those verbs, those actions, those behaviors, those things that are not like Jesus, those attitudes, those compromises that people have allowed to remain in their life. The, The work of the Holy Spirit is to help us identify this and then get it out where it's not a part of us. It's the growing up in Jesus, man. We've got to have this. But the presence of a verb or several verbs in my life does not throw me back in the cage. This is real important. It has not changed my place. It's not changed who I am in Christ. It's not changed the fact that God has not only forgiven us, forgiven me, but He remembers my sins no more. You see, God doesn't remember our sins. This is what He says over and over. That means if they're coming up in our head and coming up with condemnation, it's not God bringing it up. God's not the one doing that. No, this is why we have family. We have family for that purpose. They're the ones that seem to bring it up. Now, that's not truly their assignment. But if it's coming up, it's typically coming up from somebody that's close enough to you that thinks you need to be reminded. We need to help you. Only help for so many sounds mostly like condemnation, not real help. And yet here's the distinction we have to make. Once we know Jesus, we are out of the cage, we are in Christ. How many of us are out? If you're out, are you out? Say it out loud, I'm out. If you're out of the cage, you are where you are in Christ. How many are in Christ? It's all the same people. If you're out, you're in. Say it out loud, I'm in. 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 The only way you get in is by getting out. Once you get out, you're already in. Now I could do that all day. I could just go through this all day. I'm in. I'm out. I'm out of the cage. I'm out of the prison. I'm out of the place. I'm out of the nature of sin. It is out of me. I'm out of it. I'm in Christ. And though we're in Christ, we can still have, and this isn't to say it's a good idea or it's helpful, but we still end up having some of these verbs, behaviors. All right. Sins. That doesn't change our status, but it does change our capacity to receive and be effective in our walk with God. It does change that. It's harder to hear from the Lord when you're condemned by your own by your own sin. Don't take long to change it. Lord, I lay it out. I put it before you. I'm not I'm not interested in justifying myself. I need your justification to flood through me fresh and new, man. I need it now to deal with the verb. I'm not changing my status. I'm just changing my own head. That I'm not walking with my soul violating what is in my heart. Now this is what Paul referred to to Timothy in one place. He said there are those that are opposing themselves. They are living in opposition to themselves. How does a person oppose themselves? A person opposes themselves by having righteousness in their innermost being and unrighteousness in their soul. It disconnects the spirit and the soul. It disconnects us from our source of strength and power, that flood of the anointing of God from within. And what the Holy Spirit always is. Encouraging us to do and drawing us into the place to do is to reconnect so that our innermost being out of, out of our innermost being where the, the rivers of living water flow, that there's that connect where that is flowing into our soul and restoring our habits, yes. our mindset, our feelings, all of the various parts and pieces of our soulish life. This is vital, man. And this is how we continue to have to not only believe it, but also as leaders, we have to teach it. We have to encourage people in this. That's why I'm taking the time to encourage you in it. I I don't expect that this is new information for anybody in this audience. But these are the things that are revolutionary. This is what separates us from the unrighteous, but it also separates us from the religious. The religious mind struggles with these things. The religious mind is very performance oriented. You have to do in order to, in order to qualify. We qualify not because we do. We qualify by faith. Let me read another statement to you along this very line. And then, Remind you of some things I may have talked to you about also before, but I'm going to do it again. On a conversation Vicky and I had about this. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9 says this. He said, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. So I think we can be in agreement that we're in this today, tonight, right now. We're the people of God. That's true for you. It's true for me. So there remains a rest for all of us. Verse 10, he says, For he who has entered into his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. All right, so what do you think he's referring to when he says as God did from his? What... Reference does this writer have in mind when he says that? What do you think? As God rested from His works, this is this is for this is a moment that you could step in. Creation, Creation. of course, for six days. You know, I know it's nerve wracking to feel like you have to answer a question. But what if I'm wrong? But Rhonda, you pushed through. You've got your notes. It, from Did I talk about this last time? Well, I'm glad you've reminded me now, I feel. I feel like I need to get past that moment. For six days, God created. On the seventh day, he rested. He rested from his works. Why did he rest? Because He was done. Yeah, yeah. Now here's, here's a concept about this rest that we enter. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this, but the Bible is clear about something, that because we are in Christ, and, and this is what we've read, we qualify to walk with Him and do His work, pray His prayers, stand in His strength, Because we have rested from our works, we have entered into His. His work is finished. When He finished His work, what did He do? He rested. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did He sit down? Why did He rest? Same reason as in creation, because He was finished glory to God. So what that leaves us with now is an understanding about what the Sabbath actually is all about for us. The Sabbath was in the old covenant, of course, it was a day, a day of rest because God rested on the seventh day. And that's turned into something that God wanted for every person and thank God there's some health benefits in going ahead and walking in that today man you don't have to be 24-7 non-stop you need to rest but in our faith life with God there's something vital to understand about this and that is that Jesus is our rest. Let me say it this way. Jesus is our Sabbath. We are no longer working in order to obtain blessing. We step by faith into Christ, and now we qualify for blessing, and we are at rest. He becomes our Sabbath. It's no longer a day. Sabbath then changed to for Christians to Sunday, because that's when we want to go to church. Church is all mad at the NFL because they took Sunday away from them, and uh, and they're missing the point. Yeah. I mean, I get the struggle. I understand the the problem with it and all that, but they're missing the point. The point is is not that a day of the week is a Sabbath. The point is that Jesus Himself is our Sabbath. Yeah. When you come into Christ, you enter into rest. A lot of Christians have struggled with this. If we don't pray enough, we're not going to get anything. Well, look, prayer is vital. So we're not saying you don't pray, but if we don't read the Bible enough, then us we don't get anything. Well, reading the Bible is vital. So there's not. This isn't a message that we're liberated from Scripture or from prayer. We just float through, it. and certainly not. Uh, the talk about liberated from the tithe and because that's under the law and all of these crazy ideas that it have nothing to do with the real concept of living in the sabbath and living in Christ we are in Christ we are in rest there were things that were absorbed by the law but they were not generated in the law the tithe wasn't generated because of the law. It was part of the system before the law. It was a system that was established in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Yeah. There is a tree. Don't eat the fruit of it. Tend it. Care for it. Do the work. Just don't benefit from the fruit. Not of that tree. Every other tree is fine. That's a picture of the tithe yeah. in the garden. And you can eat all the fruit you want of all of them. You can even pick the fruit of this tree. Just don't eat it. So tithe. Right there in the garden. Long before the law. Of course, it was in Abram when he gave tithe to Melchizedek. Oh, I won't go down the road and all that. Man, that's an amazing study. Anyway, let me go back, though, to this statement that we're looking at from Hebrews. And let me remind you of something I learned from my wife, Vicki, one morning when we were... Discussing all of these kinds of things. It's been several years ago now, but boy, we, we had just grabbed on in the newest way, a brand new thing God had just been igniting inside of us. She said this to me, and this isn't what I started to tell you, I'm gonna to get to it in a second, but she said this, she said, I believe that we are stepping into a revolution of righteousness. Oh, amen. That's been a few years ago that she said that to me, we hadn't heard this terminology ever, To my knowledge, she said that to me, it exploded in me because we had both been digging into this exact subject of righteousness. And that's what grace is designed to impart to us and ignite in us is a a life of right standing with God. And so we were discussing all this, and man, we were a couple of hours. We're drinking coffee, and we're talking all morning. And you know how you do. You talk more, you drink more coffee, you drink more coffee, you certainly talk more. And uh, man, we were deep into... A Holy Spirit caffeinated conversation. Yes, very much fueled. Ignited. And then Vicki says this to me. She says, Dennis, Dennis. I mean, she just blurts it out. Dennis. We have an assignment from God, which is our due. It's what God wants us to do. It's the assignment. All of us have it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. She said, well, do is half of done. I'm going, yeah, baby, you're right. D-O and D-O-N-E. It's exactly half. She says, you're not getting this, are you? And I said, apparently not. (laughs) She said, our do is our assignment. And if we're looking to do enough to receive all that is done, you can never do enough. Oh, lights are starting to come on. Yeah, darling, I get this. She said, but if you receive by faith what is done in Christ, inside of what is done is everything for your due. Hallelujah. There's all the power, all the revelation, all the attention of the Holy Spirit, all the leadership, the guidance that you're going to require to do what God has called you to do. It's all inside of having received what is done. What we're called to do is remind people, stir up in people, Continue to proclaim the power of what has been done. That's where the power is. It's inside of the good news. And the good news is that it is finished. Yes. Hallelujah to it Jesus. Off. It is finished. Your sins been dealt with. The fear of death that it has brought to people has been dealt with. We've been delivered by the power of God. We don't have to fear what an enemy can do. We understand that we now qualify for everything that God has assigned for us to do. That means when God gives us an assignment and we don't feel qualified, the very fact that He has given us an assignment of any type means from His point of view we are already qualified. And so we just have to grow into it by that grace. The grace grows inside of us, doesn't it? Grace grows. This is what Peter told us to do. He said, grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It grows in us. The empowering to do. That's why that book that I ended up writing, I've titled it Empowered by Grace because we are empowered to do what we cannot do any other way. We're empowered by that deposit, the substance of God within. When God first started to talk to me about writing a book, it was 1981. And I'd been teaching on how to meditate in God's Word. And uh, that had been important to me. I understood the value of it, but I had to dig out. I couldn't find anything written about it. I didn't know of anything... Uh, in detail that is taught about it. It was just, I was told, you need to meditate, and the Bible says a few things about it. So I started to dig in to how to meditate in God's Word. And God gave me some light that I'd been teaching for a period of time until He spoke to me one day in 1981. He said, now I want you to write a book on how to meditate in God's Word. And I almost went into shock. I thought, Lord. And I talked back to Him. I said, Lord, I, I don't... Uh, Do you think you have the right person for this? Are you sure? I mean, Lord, do you remember my English class with Mr. Gilbert? (laughs) See, because I don't. (laughs) Those, those were the days that I was traveling the universe on a regular basis, and while I sat there in that class, I'm sure my attendance was there. I was not there, (laughs) and so there were gaps. In my understanding of the English language, and I knew from this word from the Lord, He wants me to write a book. There's gonna be some things that I'm quite unfamiliar with. Things like nouns, verbs, adverbs, things in the way to structure sentences, and things that if I'm gonna write a book, that's gonna be a part of it. So I'm saying, Lord, I know people. I'll, I'll encourage them to write this book. I'll share my My notes with them. They can write it. I'll talk to them on your behalf. And, of course, he's not interested in that. He doesn't change his mind. You know, I found you can negotiate with God. You can. Some say you can't, but you can. You can negotiate with God. Now, here's the thing you've come to understand. God doesn't change in any of these negotiations. But you can go through the motions. Lord, I can't do that. Lord, I can't. I mean, I I told him, I said, Lord... You know me. I don't know how to write a book. I've only read two or three books in my life. Old Man in the Sea, Call of the Wild. I didn't even get through the Call of the Wild. <laughs> I had to see the movie to figure out what happened. And then I missed the ending and misunderstood what really just took place. Vicky had to explain it to me. It's so sad. <laughs> but God just went ahead with the idea that I needed to write this book. And I said, well, here's the deal. And I made a deal. I did. I said, here's the deal. I'll write this book. I'll, I'll do this. As long as somebody's going to read it. I felt like that was fair. He seemed to be okay with that as if that was the very cause and purpose for me writing this in the first place. So I said to him I was, and, and, and prayed about how this was going to take place. And so I, I realized we'd come to nobody Buddy Harrison that started Harrison House. And I thought, well, if I'm going to write a book, I should see if Buddy Harrison might consider publishing this book. And I thought that would be a God thing. And so it just so happened a few days later, um, weeks later, I guess, a few weeks later, I was uh, at a big convention. It was the first Believers' Convention that Kenneth Copeland had in Fort Worth, Texas, 1981. And Buddy Harrison and Pat had come to this Believers' Convention and we had already met. He knew me; I knew him—not well, but we knew one another enough. I saw him standing over in the section where all the books and, in those days, cassette tapes were there, um, made available to people. And, and, but he was just standing there, and most likely waiting on Pat, which is what men do. And there he stood, waiting also for me. As it turned out, he didn't know it, so I just went up and. Gosh, now that I think of it, I did kind of like what I did to Kenneth on that platform. <laughs> Didn't think of it just that way till just this moment. But I walked up to Buddy. I said, hey, Buddy. We said hello and chatted for just a moment. I said, look, the Lord's talking to me about writing a book. Uh, I'm to write a book, and I wanted to see if Harrison House would publish it. It's on how to meditate in God's Word. I'll never forget. I'm standing right next to Buddy. And if you know Buddy, I mean, he's such a great guy. God used him such such But he looked down. I'm standing right next to him. He looked down. I say, I just said that. I just talked to him about publishing this book. He looked down. And then he looked up. I'm standing over here. He turned this way. I'm thinking, I'm standing here thinking, so are we having a conversation? <laughs> I didn't say anything, you know. And I'm a little slow at this, but I finally realized he's listening to the Lord to see what to do with what I've just said. Okay, I'm getting it. Anyway, in just a moment, he says, uh, yeah, Dennis, we'll do that. I said, you will? I was shocked. I mean, I'm, I'm delighted, but I was shocked. He said, yeah, we'll do that. And just as he said that, up walked two men, the vice president and the general manager of Harrison House. They were there. I didn't know them. So Buddy introduced us. And he said, man, I want you to meet Dennis Burke. Dennis, uh, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so. Uh, they're in Men, we're going to publish a book for, for Dennis on how to meditate in God's Word. They said, well, praise God. And then Buddy, this is just so typical. Buddy, he just said, why don't the three of you go sit down over here and just work out the details right now. They said, well, great. So they started over there, and I started over there. I mean, this is like happening. Seriously. So I sat down with these men, and... They started in with working out details. They started through the details. I hadn't worked out details like this before. Because I've never written a book before. Because I'd only read a book and a half. This was not my world. Anyway, they're going through details. My side of the conversation was somewhat limited. It was things... This this was kind of my side of the conversation. Uh-huh. Sure. Just what I had in mind. Well, that'll be great. Well, <laughs> oh, we're working out details, man. I mean, it was happening right now. I don't know what's going on. But we're working out details. Finally, they did ask the question. I knew it was coming. I knew this one was coming. So when should we expect the manuscript? Manuscript. That's all those nouns and verbs and adverbs that I was not familiar with even yet. <laughs> So it was August when we're having this conversation, so I said, well, you'll have it in September. (laughs) That's exactly what I told him. I'm thinking, you know, it's got to be a miracle anyway. Let's get it on. Let's not drag this out for a year. Let's just have a miracle. So I said, you'll have it in September. I did have a caveat. I did not indicate what year that September would fall in exactly. (laughs) But you know they—they they took the implication that it was coming to, uh, real soon. They didn't really. They're praising God. I had not written a word. That's beautiful. So it's like I don't know how do you do. I don't know how, how do, you, what do you how do you write a book. You know, you write. So it's like I was traveling then, like I do now, and so it's like put on the calendar, write a book. It was the first week of September I had time at home to do that. Write a book. Sure. So when that time came, I got to my kitchen table. We didn't have an office. I got to my kitchen table. I laid out books and notes and things that I studied from and this and that and got my big legal-sized pad of paper and big trash can and sat down to write. And I started with prayer, which is certainly what I needed right then. And I said, Oh God, if you love me, I need this now. I don't need it next week because I'm going to be, and he knew where and wherever I was going to be. I said, this is the time. I need this now. And lo and behold, I sat at that desk for four days, six hours a day, and I wrote that first book I've ever written on how to meditate in God's word. Whoa. Glory to God. Not because I was qualified, but because I was willing. And I tapped into the grace that empowers you to do what you cannot do. I did not have what it takes to write a book. But I did have the grace. So let me rephrase. I did have exactly what it takes to do what God assigned me to do. And if God doesn't assign me to it, I am not going to drag myself through it and hope it turns out right. But when I know God wants this, there's the grace to do it. So I don't know what all God's called you to do. I know some things for some of us. Some things are general things. All of us have the assignment to do. But then there's details that God wants for every single one of us. And for anybody, any of us, no matter what God tells us, Whether from other people's point of view, it's big or small. For us, it's huge. Because this is what God has told me. Significance doesn't come by the size of something that's being done. Significance comes by who has told me to do what I'm doing. And as long as God's the one that has given me an assignment, that's all the significance I need. And with that assignment comes the grace to do it. So I'm going to pray for you. I've talked long enough. But I want to pray for you for this. I want to pray for you for a fresh, brand new, right now today, impartation and multiplying of the grace that is in you. This is what Peter prayed That God would multiply the grace and multiply in us so that it grows, so that we're empowered to do the assignment. Because assignments can wear you out if you don't do it according to the grace that God has given you. It doesn't come to pass. The assignments don't end up fulfilled unless we're doing it according to the grace. This is what Paul said. He said, I do what I do according to the grace that's been given to me. If we're not doing it by what God has given us as a deposit, then it's just wearing us out. But we can reignite that grace, that substance, that inner ability, that divine influence on the inside. That's what grace is. I know I'm reminding you of these things. But I believe there's something right now. The Holy Spirit's breathing fresh on you and on me. I'm taking it personal. Because the days in front of us are full of assignment, of direction, directives that God's given. But it's going to take the grace of God multiplied in us for these things to really come about. So I want you to stand with me and I want to pray for you again. You glad you came tonight? Yes. want you to let the Holy Spirit just wash through you fresh right where you are. If you're watching by live stream... The same Holy Spirit is right there right now, just like He is here. So I want you to receive this just the same as if you're standing here with us. Father, here we are in Your presence. Your Word is alive in us and Your grace is ever-present and abundant. We receive the abundance of grace. We have received the right standing and righteousness that comes by faith. The just shall live By faith, we've received that. I pray for every single person that there is an explosion of great grace that rises up out of our innermost being once again, floods through our soul. That in the name of Jesus, there is a fresh grace to fulfill our assignment We lay hold on it and receive it. We thank you that what is done is real in us, that it is finished. We rest in that grace that empowers us for the days that we're in right now. Empowers us to have guidance, to have leadership, to have divine energy, to have resolve, that we stand against every every bit of the wiles of the devil, that in Jesus' name, great grace is alive within every one of us to fulfill our due. We receive what is done by faith and ignite the grace for our assignment and receive it in Jesus' name. Real fruitfulness, multiplied grace, impartations of the Spirit that are fresh and alive in us right this minute in the name of Jesus. I just got a word in my spirit for somebody watching via live stream. That a cloud of discouragement and real depression has come on you. This is exactly the answer. That the Holy Spirit has wanted you to hear. And you've tuned in to hear it. That there is God's grace in you and on you. And that darkness and depression, it has no right to remain. It's not about the failings that have brought you into that dark time. It's about the divine energy of the Spirit of God within. That now delivers your soul fills you and floods you with that great grace that's now not just in you, it's on you also. It's like it has descended like a new cloud. A cloud that has the abundance of rain in it, the rain of the Holy Spirit. I want you to receive it right now, man. You you just start drinking it in because you're in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're in the presence of the Spirit of God right here. I'm receiving myself in the name of Jesus. Lord, we're grateful people. I thank you for great grace. I thank you for great leadership. I thank you for great assignments that you've called us to. And everything that it takes to bring it to pass. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Glory to God. Do you receive that tonight? Glory to Jesus. Man, I stir it stirred it up in myself. Amen. Amen. And I received it. Glory to God. Man, I'm glad you've been here. Is it worth a drive? Yes. Praise the Lord. It's worth a drive for me too. Well, God bless you.